All right, Revelation 21. Revelation 21. We are at the end of the end. We read in our scripture reading in Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus taught about his kingdom and he explained what his kingdom would be like for those who follow him. You know, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God, right? He talked about that. And at the end of this vision of revelation that John has been given, he's seeing that coming kingdom with his own eyes now, the promises becoming reality. John's first look, we saw last week at New Jerusalem, it gave us insight into its creativity, its beauty, its wonder, and its radiance. And that spoke of how God's going to continue the good works that He's foreordained for us for all eternity. But as John is now given a deeper look into the city, he notices some things that are going on. Notices what everyday life will be like in this holy city, and it will be just like Jesus promised. So chapter 21, we begin in verse 22. John says, and I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. So here we see that our eternal home is also, uh, it's not a, it's not a, there's no temple inside of it because the Lord, it says, and the Lamb is the temple of it. Uh, This city is like one big holy of holies, you know, except without the veil to seal it off, right? It's one big holy of holies, and, but we, don't, we, we can go in and, and anytime we want to be as close to the Lord as we want to be. Therefore, we don't need an actual place of worship. Our home is the place of worship. Our forever home is the place where we can be closest to God. Now, you might be wondering and say, well, well didn't that happen when Jesus tore the veil and our bodies became God's temple? Well, yes but also no. (laughs) Yes, in the sense that the veil was torn, and I can worship God wherever I am. But this body is not the perfect home. We can still grieve God's Spirit in this body. Our flesh often makes us feel like God is far away, even though He's right in our midst. When we get here, our future home, we will never feel far from God. We will never grieve Him with our thoughts or with our actions. Doesn't that sound good? Now, because the Father and the Son become our eternal sanctuary, this city also doesn't need other things. It says in verse 23, and the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it. Uh, The word there, shine, means to make things visible. You know, um, know, when we lose power in our neighborhood, our neighborhood is an older neighborhood, and so the power lines are frequently affected by, you know, our interesting weather we have here in Florida. And so, when we lose power, you realize just how dark it is, you know? Um, you know, you can't, sometimes you can't see very well at all. You're stumbling around looking for the hurricane kit or whatever, you know, and find the candles and light them up and, you know, provide some illumination. Um, I, I remember when I was, I went on to college on a mountain and up on the mountain, you're above the clouds and you don't have any of that uh, pollution. You don't have any of the light pollution either. And you see how bright the stars and the moon and everything are at night. It really does light things up. Um, but here down low, uh, we don't really see that very well. And so when the lights go out, the lights really do go out. And so, you know, 
the idea here is that they won't need any of those things to illuminate, to make things visible in the city, for it says the glory of God, God's splendor, His radiance, His brightness does illuminate the city. It makes things visible, and the Lamb is the light, or literally the lamp of the city. That's how the light shines. This should not surprise us. In 1 John 1, 5, it tells us God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. In John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, referring to Jesus, the Word, he says, and in him was life, and that life was the light of men. And the darkness tries to, you know, comprehend it, but it can't, right? The light shines in the darkness, like we sang, but the darkness can't apprehend it, can't stop it. In John eight twelve, Jesus said, I am the light of the world, Right? This should not surprise us here. And if we didn't understand those to be literal, well, Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 6.16, referring to Jesus, he says, who only has immortality dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto. The light that no man can approach unto is the Father's light. Jesus alone has the ability to enter into that light. Light is a part of who God is. It emanates from Him. This is one of the reasons why light could precede the creation of the sun, moon, and stars in Genesis. It's that big problem in Genesis 1, right? Before anything else, God says, let there be light. And what does the Bible say? We had to wait till day number whatever to get the sun, moon, and stars. That's not what it says. Let there be light, and there was light. It's a really complicated, complicated Hebrew phrase that means there was light. Because <laughs> he is light. So what were things like before God created time, space, and matter? I don't know, but I can tell you this. It wasn't dark. Every time those videos play right before God's about to create the universe or some evolution video is going to do it, they always describe this darkness, this primordial darkness, and all of a sudden, you know, the light. Well, yeah, when God created time, space, and matter, and before He said light, yeah, but before that, it wasn't dark because God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. There was always light because it's who God is. And when he decided to create our universe, he shined his own light into it first before he created the sun, moon, and the stars. Jesus alone is able to live in that unapproachable light of the Father's presence because it's part of Jesus' nature too. But when we are like Jesus in our new bodies, we will be able to be in God's presence as well. Now, does this mean then, therefore, that there will be no moon and stars and sun in the new heavens? Maybe, maybe not. That's not what this is saying. What this is saying is that they aren't needed in the city because the Lord is in our midst. Amen? And we talk about what's going on in the New Jerusalem. Well, the first thing that we know is that God's presence is in the city. Now, if God's presence brings this light and God's light can shine across the entire universe, it's going to leak beyond the city as well. And so verse 24 of Revelation 21 explains and the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, the light of the city. And the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. And the gates of it, the city, shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. 
and there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defiles, neither whatsoever works abomination or makes a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. So first off, we know about what's inside the city is God's presence is in the city. The second thing we learn here is that only believers can enter the city, the new Jerusalem. It mentions here that the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of the city. They will conduct their lives, not in the city, but in the light that shines and permeates past the city from God's presence being there. And it says the kings of these nations of the earth, they will bring their glory and honor into New Jerusalem. Whoever these kings are, they conduct their rule outside New Jerusalem, but they are allowed access into New Jerusalem for the purpose of bringing gifts to the Lord from out of the prosperity His reign has brought them. Isaiah chapter 60 seems to describe this experience. It describes the promise of God the Father to the Messiah of what the kings of the earth will bring Him and do for Him during the millennial reign. It's fascinating. We see all sorts of passages like that in the Bible where the Father's talking to the Son. You know, we see it, you know, where, where the Father says to the Son, He says, ask of me and I'll give you the nations for your inheritance. You know, the Lord has said unto my Lord, sit on my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. Numerous times we see the Father talking to the Son, the Messiah, throughout Scripture. And Isaiah 60 seems to be one of those occasions as well. So this, of course, leaves the big question of who are these nations and who are their kings? Well, since Israel's only one nation, kind of rules them out, and the word here for nations, ethnos, normally refers to the Gentile nations. So nations here seems to point to those who become believers during the Great Tribulation and then survive to enter the Millennial Kingdom. It says the nations of them that are saved. The phrase there just means the nations of those who've been rescued. And of course, Jesus is the one who rescues them from the Antichrist, right? Right? So that would seem to me to be the most obvious answer, which would lead me to believe that this is speaking of the new Jerusalem during the millennial kingdom and not just the new earth. It would seem to appear then that these surviving sheep, that in Matthew chapter 25, one of the, oftentimes we talk about Matthew 25 and they're like, you know, you know, you know, whenever you see someone hungry, whenever you see someone in prison and you visit them and all the sick and you, you, you know, you help them, you know, it, you're doing it for Jesus. So we need to do that too, which is all true. But that passage has nothing to do with that, that idea. That passage is about rewarding the faithful during the tribulation. And he says to those, it's, it says on Matthew 25, 31, there's multiple um, teachings in Matthew 25 that are often misused. But in Matthew 25, 31, it says, when the Son of Man shall come in His glory, so it tells us what this is talking about, and all the holy angels with Him, then shall He sit upon the throne of His glory. And before Him shall be gathered all nations, and He shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And He shall set the sheep on His right hand, but the goats on His left hand. And then shall the king say unto them on His right hand, the sheep, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared from you for you from the foundation of the world. So it would seem that these surviving sheep that Jesus rescues, they are not just entering into the kingdom, but they're, maybe they're given authoritative roles over nations when Jesus sets up his kingdom. 
that's where I lean. There is another option, though. It's possible because verse 9 of Revelation 21 says, I'm going to show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. I'm going to explain to you the character and the significance of the church. It's possible that the angel is, because uh, we're called kings and priests in Revelation 1.6, that this is referring to Christians who are saved, because we have been rescued in every, out of every nation, tribe, and tongue. So this could be a reference to us. Of course, there's a third option, and it's the I don't know option, right? You know, I mean, this could be a reference toward something, you know, that, that you know, we don't understand and can't understand until we get into this time period. So, you know, I would say again, whatever view you take, it's okay to disagree on this because nobody's going to be disappointed if they're wrong. You know, if you find out it's us instead of, and you thought it was the tribulation saints, you're not going to be like, oh, I'm out of here, you know? <laughs> you know, this is, I was lied to, you know? <clears throat> I mean, whoever these kings and nations are, it's a good thing, right? Because it means no one ever need walk in darkness again. And that's the whole point of Isaiah 60 when it talks about these kings from all these different nations it lists here that are, are bringing their, their goods their, out of their prosperity to the Messiah. It says in, in verses 1 and 2, arise, shine, for your light is come. Isaiah 61, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth and gross darkness the people, that great tribulation. We're living in that encroaching darkness right now but the Lord shall arise upon you and his glory shall be seen upon you. So that's the whole point. No one will ever need walk in darkness again. Verse 25, and therefore the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. It's a double negative in the Greek. There shall in no wise, in no way be any night there. No more things going clatter in the night, Amen. Yeah, the first service was like, I don't care about that, you know. I had no amen, so you guys are good. You're better than first service. Seriously, no, I, we have, we have, um, we have uh, the, the motion sensor lights on the outside of the house, and, and, and the, the backyard one is right up against our bedroom. And so, you know, when we have possums and other creatures that like to walk in the backyard in, in the dark... And so, 3, 4 a.m., it's not an uncommon thing for all of a sudden the sun to be shining like the glory of God in my bedroom window, you know? And of course, it startles you, and you're up looking around, and then you see some furry thing, you know, four-footed thing crawling off into the forest or whatever, you know? And, and, and no more of that. No more wondering who's skulking around my yard, you know? Who's skulking around with bad intentions? None of that. The gates will be open at all times because there'll never be night. Night is the time of the criminal. It's a time where wicked deeds are done because people can't see. No worries about them. Or all will be safe. Doesn't that sound great? <laughs> the reason it's all safe is because only believers are allowed into the city. Verse 26, and they, these kings of these nations, they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. It repeats something it said before because it's going to stand in contrast with what comes in verse 27. But before we get to 27, I want to point out that how different New Jerusalem is from Babylon the Great. Babylon tried to become the hub of the world, enslaving men to, to force all the merchandise to go through Babylon. That will be part of what causes the campaign of Armageddon. Other nations are going to go, uh-uh, you go too far. You, you control too much. 
But here we see kings willingly bring their merchandise to Jesus in New Jerusalem because he is good. He's a good king. They'll come in, but verse 27, there shall in no wise, certainly not, by no means, no way, Jose, there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defiles. The word there means anyone that, de- that is a defiler. It means someone who causes something to become unclean or unacceptable to God. Anyone who works abomination, someone who practices things that God hates. And anyone who makes a lie, who practices falsehoods. But they that are written in the Lamb's book of life. The word but there is two words. These people are not allowed in, with one exception. (laughs) If your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. If not, is what but there means. This is true unless this condition is met. In other words, those who were written in the Lamb's book of life, their names aren't written there because they're better than anyone else. They were defilers, and they were those who practiced the things that God hates. They were those who practiced falsehoods. The only difference between those who can enter the city and those who can't is that the ones who can repented of their sins and placed their trust in Christ. And so, this reminds us that anyone who walks into the city has had their sins completely forgiven. Isn't it good to know that you're forgiven? How many days do we wake up and we don't feel forgiven? It's a good thing our forgiveness isn't based on how we feel. It's based on the declaration that we are justified through the risen Christ. Every single day of eternity Every time you walk through those gates, you'll be fully aware that whatever you did in the past that was evil and wrong is washed away by the blood of Christ. Isn't that good news? (laughs) We're exhorted today to come boldly before the throne of grace, but then we will understand just how boldly we can come when we're in New Jerusalem. We won't see through a glass darkly then. We'll be face-to-face with Jesus, and we will know things to the same degree that He knows us. I cannot wait for that day. There will be no more shame, no more guilt, no more sin. Amen? So this does raise the question then, so does this mean that there will be unbelievers who do these things present on the earth at this time since they are without or they don't get to go in? No, John isn't saying that at all. In fact, John is just reiterating here what Jesus already told us in the rest of Matthew 25. In the latter part of Matthew 25, in verse 41, it says, Then he shall say also to those on the left hand, the goats, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and for his angels. Verse 46, Matthew 25, And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous unto life eternal. What John is stating to us here and reminding us is there's no second chances after you die. None. I remember there was a a gal I knew who used to say that. Well, I think you get a second chance after you die. No, you don't. You do not. You get lots of chances while you're still breathing. Right? If you're still breathing, there's still an opportunity to repent and be saved. And so if you're breathing, if you haven't, repent and be saved. 
But once you die, there are no second chances. Your chance to repent and trust in Christ is in this life. And if you fail to do it in this life, you will be separated from God for all eternity, barred from all eternity from this amazing city. That's what John's saying. Now, we know that God's presence will be in the city, number one. Number two, we know that only you know, believers will be in the city. But number three, verse 22, tells us about some more amazing things that we can experience in this city. John begins in chapter 22. The reason there's a chapter break here, even though there's not a subject break, is because John now is going to give us a more in-depth description of the city's interior. It's not all just buildings and light. It's also like a beautiful garden. Look at verse 1 and 2. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the midst of the street of it and on either side of the river was there the tree of life, which bare 12 fruits and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. God's presence is there, number one. Number two, only believers are allowed to go inside. And number three, life and healing are in this city. First off, we see this river of water of life. It's funny because John's just taking everything in. The angel, it's almost like he he taps him on the shoulder and he points. He shows him something new that he hasn't noticed yet. A pure river of water of life. And you know, this is the realization of God's offer in Revelation 21, verse 6, when he said, I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. This is the realization of everything Jesus promised in John 7 on the great day of the feast when they would pour out those water vats, you know, on the Feast of Tabernacles and be reminded of the fact that, yes, they were in the land, but they were not governing themselves. There was great sadness, great thirst because they knew they were not experiencing everything God had promised to them. And on the great day of the feast, the last day in John 7, 37, Jesus stood up and cried with a loud voice and he says, if any man thirst, I will give him. And he said, out of his innermost being, his belly will gush torrents of living water, rivers of living water. This is the realization of that promise It is this life that is 100% full of the Holy Spirit, just as Jesus experienced on earth. Listen, when we get to heaven, we're not Jesus. We're not little God men and God women running around eternity, all right? Don't let anyone ever tell you. And I've heard, I've heard, I've heard Bible-believing Christians say, well, I think maybe, you know, we're going to get our own planet and we'll kind of rule it and be our God and whatever. No, 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 no. Perish the thought. God forbid. Stop saying that. You don't get your own little planet, you'll get to be your own little God. That's heresy. There's one God. But we will be like Christ in the sense that we will be perfect men and perfect women, 100% filled with the Spirit, you know? This water of life gushing out of us always in all that we do. It mentions that it's clear as crystal. It means it's bright and shining like ice. Similar to how snow-melted waters would cascade down a mountainside. Well, the mountain in this case is God's throne, for it says the river proceeds out of the throne of God and out of the Lamb. The Father and the Son are the only source of this life-giving water. Listen, whatever the world offers to quench your thirst, it will not satisfy It won't. Whatever the enemy or your flesh offers to quench your thirst will never satisfy. You will keep searching, but you will not find what you're looking for. 
And so New Jerusalem is superior to Babylon in every way. Even though Babylon will offer you a lot of shiny, it's just a, a facade, a, a false front. There's no, no substance inside. New Jerusalem's shiny, but there's substance inside. Life and healing are inside the city. It mentions in verse 2, in the midst of the street, in the middle of this street that John had already seen, the river runs right through it, for we see that on either side of the river there was the tree of life. Tree, therefore, is quite large because it's wider than the river. Now, the tree of life is an interesting thing. It's only mentioned in the book of Genesis and the book of Revelation. That's it in the Bible. Revelation 2 verse 7 lists the tree of life as a promised blessing to those who overcome. And we will see that realization in New Jerusalem. It is the inheritance of every born-again child of God. Now, what's so special about the tree of life? Well, it mentions it bear 12 King James says manner of fruits, but manner is in italics because it's not there. It just means it bare 12 fruits. It produced 12 fruits, and it says yielding her fruit every month. So this could be 12 different kinds of fruits, one for each month, or it could just mean there are 12 separate harvests of the same fruit, one each month. No explanation is given to us in Scripture why the fruit is a monthly allotment. So this is either something that's new for our eternal state, or that's how things were in Eden. Like in Eden, maybe once a month, they'd go and hang out at the tree of life, and they're like, all right, I'm good for a month, you know? I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm guessing here. Genesis 3.22 does hint, though, that the tree of life grants eternal life, because the Father says, He says, we need to bar the way to the tree of life, lest man can eat of it in his fallen state and live forever that way. So the idea here is we're going to live forever, but in a different state, not a fallen state. We'll live forever in our new bodies, partaking of this eternal life for all eternity. And then we learn something new about the tree of life. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. The tree of life has a second function. The word here for healing is the word uh, therapia, which is where we get our word therapy from. It means to care for or serve someone who's sick. It can mean to cure or heal. This word is used very broadly in the Scripture. For example, it's used to describe the, the spiritual and emotional healing that Jesus brought through His teaching. It's used to describe uh, the emotional healing that Jesus brought when He cast out demons. It's used to describe the physical healing that Jesus brought when He cured the blind, the lame, the deaf, and the sick. In other words, it's a very, very broad word that refers to both physical, emotional, and spiritual care. Now, it mentions here it's for the physical, emotional, spiritual care and service of the nations. We already explained that these nations, they could either be the tribulation survivors, it could be us, or it could be some group that we won't fully understand until we get to eternity. So while we can't say for sure who these people are that experience God's healing care, I can say something about our experience before we get to heaven, though. Why? Well, there are many hurts in this world, something that was not present in Eden. It's probably why this wasn't mentioned in Genesis. So whatever they, these leaves do, they are God's way of caring for all the hurts that this group has experienced in the fallen world, whether they're physical, emotional, or spiritual. Now, this leads me to believe again that these 
are the believers who survive the tribulation and enter the millennial kingdom because they will have experienced horrifying things, much pain during those seven years, and they will need much care and service from the Lord for their healing. But it is possible it refers to all of us as well. Either way, whatever pains you're experiencing in this life, whether they be emotional demons, physical sickness, or spiritual anguish, Jesus will care for you in eternity in such a powerful way that you will be cured. Amen? (laughs) Whatever it is you're going through, whatever aches and pains you have, whatever suffering you're experiencing, how much the enemy might torment you, the battles you might have emotionally and spiritually, you'll be whole when you're there. You'll be whole forever. Amen? (laughs) Well, one last thing. Not only is God's presence in the city, only believers are in the city, life and healing are in the city, but our relationship with God is the most intimate that it could ever have been and ever will be in this city. Verse 3 says, And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him. And they shall see His face, and His name shall be in their foreheads. And there shall be no night there, and they shall need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord gives them light. Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. What will our, our relationship with the Lord be like in the New Jerusalem? Well, first off, we will serve during the worship services. It says there shall be no more cursed. Literally, it means there shall be no more accursed thing. It comes from the word anathema, which is the word that's used in the Scripture to describe God's destruction of wicked things or wicked people. So there shall not exist any accursed things or any accursed people, anything that God has to destroy. Now, I know a lot of people say, well, this refers to the curse in Genesis 3. While I'm fully assured there will be no curse from Genesis 3 in eternity, this is not talking about that. What this is saying is there'll be no rebellion in New Jerusalem, nothing that needs to be destroyed because only those who are God's servants will be there. Only those who have willingly bent the knee will come before his throne. And so John is reminding us again, no second chances after death. No second chances. So, his servants, what will they do? They will serve him. The word serve here, it means to perform religious rites as part of worship. So, we we talked earlier that the Bible says that we are kings unto our God, But the Bible also said in Revelation 1-6, we are priests unto our God. So we will have that one rule, ruling and reigning with Christ or in the kingdom, but we will also have this role of being priests. We will assist in whatever worship goes on in New Jerusalem. Well, what does that mean exactly? I don't know. I mean, you know, I don't know. I mean, they're going to have sign-ups for ushers or sign-ups for kids' ministry. You know, I, I don't know. I mean, what exactly does it look like? You say, Pastor Will, am I going to be doomed to children's ministry for all eternity? I don't know. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> children's ministry is a blessing. <laughs> awesome blessing. So, and uh, no one will be doomed to anything. I don't know exactly what it means, but I can tell you this it would be better than any service that Calvary Chapel Orlando puts on. I guarantee you that. So you're going to want to be a part of it. You're going to want to be there. And for how wonderful all that sounds, there's still more. Verse 4. 
and they shall see his face. I remember studying that for the first time and, and, or hearing it taught for the first time and had a little note in my Bible around those words. It says, this is what makes heaven, heaven. See means to visibly see, to understand, to experience. What does it mean to experience God's face, to see his face, to understand his face? I mean, is it, is it kind of like us, you know, before, you know, when you know, COVID first hit and we were all wearing masks and then finally they came off and like, oh, I can put a name to the face now, you know? Is that what that means? What does it mean they're going to see God's face? Well, it must be a big deal because in Exodus thirty-three twenty, God told Moses, there can no man see my face and live. So if that was our condition here, that we can't see his face in this body, in this life, and live, well, then it must be a big deal. Now, it's interesting when God told Moses that in Exodus 33, just a very short time after that in Numbers chapter 6, God instructs Moses to teach Aaron to give a certain blessing to the nation of Israel each day. And in Numbers 6, at the end of the chapter, verse 23, God says, Speak unto Aaron and unto his sons, saying, On this wise shall you bless the children of Israel, saying unto them, the Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his, what? His face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Okay? So seeing God's face brings those blessings, or even just having his face shine upon us, his countenance lift up upon us, that he looks at us, has that effect. Sounds pretty good. Jesus promised, we read about it in the, our scripture reading in the Sermon on the Mount, the very beginning when he's listing out the principles of the kingdom and the blessings of the kingdom. He says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And David he said he would finally be satisfied, that finally he would have everything he needed when he saw God's face. Psalm 17, 15, he said, I will be, I'll be satisfied when I awake in your likeness and I'll see your face. What does it mean to not just have God's face shine upon us, to know his peace, to lift up his countenance upon us, you know? What, what does it mean to see God's face? Well, there's lots of things I could say. I could probably do multi-week study on that topic, but to try to sum it up in a few minutes because we've got to quit soon. In Genesis 2.25, it states the ideal of marriage. You have two people standing before one another, naked and unashamed. I mean, who do we do that with today? I mean, a lot of times we even struggle with that in our own marriages, right? Here's all of me and there's all of you, and are we good? Nope. No way, Jose. Cover that up, and I never want to see that again, right? Don't ever treat me like that. I don't like that about you, right? I mean, we don't do that. There, you know, even, even if we get to a place where there's nothing held back, is there acceptance? Love, forgiveness, grace, I mean, all those things. 
even in some of the most intimate relationships we can have here, the most intimate of all being a marriage, even there we struggle, don't we? What's interesting is that Paul told us that marriage is to be a picture of our relationship with the Lord, right? Talks about all these things about how marriage is supposed to work and the principles of marriage in Ephesians 5. And he goes, tell you the truth though, what I'm really talking about here is Christ and the church. So if that's supposed to picture our relationship with the Lord, what does it mean to really see God's face? Well, I believe seeing God's face will be the full realization of everything that marriage is supposed to be in Genesis 2.25. All of God revealed to us and all of us revealed to God. And yet we are not consumed. Instead, there is warmth. You know, we are accepted, we are welcomed, we are loved as God's face shines on us in all of its fiery glory. We are accepted, forgiven, That's what the next words say. His name shall be in their foreheads. They'll see his face, and guess what? You're not crispy crittered. You're not consumed. You will not just live, but you will know even as you're known. His name, it's his mark of ownership, his mark of acceptance, his mark of love, speaks that we are his and he is ours. Intimacy. And it says that we will experience God this way forever. For there shall be no night there. There will be never a time when we can't see God's face or when his face is dimly seen. Our experience now is listed in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 at the end, towards verse 12 or so, when Paul says, now we see through a glass darkly. We see through a mirror. It's, it's, it's like when you come out of the shower and the mirror is all foggy and whatever, and you're trying to shave and you got to you know, wipe it down every few seconds. Even then, you still might miss a spot because you're not seeing clearly. That's our experience now. That's why the very next verse says, and these three things remain, faith, hope, and love, because we still have to cling to that every day. We have to trust God even when we don't feel Him, when we don't see Him, right? We, we, we have to rest in His love even when we don't experience that. We don't feel that. We don't see it. We have an expectation of what He promises even when everything we, out there looks like it's not happening. That's why Aaron prayed that God's face would shine on his people. We need, we need to experience something of that. But then, we won't need candles. That's what it says. You don't even need candles, neither the light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. The Lord will be our lamp, and we will bask in the light of his face, face to face, unashamed, all of him exposed, all of us exposed for all eternity. And you know what? In these dark days, don't you long for the light that will never end? Don't you long for a light that permeates every corner of our existence? You know, we'll finish Revelation next week, God willing. But it makes sense that we see multiple times that John ends the book of Revelation by saying, even so, come. Yes, I know that there's 15 chapters of yuck. I know that there's judgment coming. I know it's, it's, it's bad news for a lot of people. But even so, come quickly. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. 
Because despite all the judgment that will fall in the world, what comes after is what the world needs. It's the only answer for the world. We are not getting there apart from Christ. We're not getting there no matter how hard we try, no matter who we elect, no matter how many people we convince to see things our way. We will only get there when Jesus comes to rule and reign. And so, is it rough? Yeah, even so, come quickly. Even so, come quickly. And so with John, I say the same words. Let's all stand. Lord, we long for this place, this home, Lord, a real home. We feel so out of place here, Lord. We long for a real home. And so we pray with John, we say with John, even so, even though this is coming, come quickly. And Lord, in the meantime, while you tarry, we have a job to do, Lord. We want to be faithful in it. So Lord, pour out your spirit upon all of us now. Lord, give us a supernatural love for our enemies. Give us a supernatural love for those who spout nonsense, who are lost, Lord, that we might shine, that you might shine through us, that people might see something otherworldly, something supernatural, something from New Jerusalem, something different than Babylon. And Lord, we commit our lives to you that As we say, come quickly, Lord, we want to take as many with us as we can. So give us a burden, Lord, for the lost in our work environments, the lost in our community and our family. Give us a deep love, Lord, like you have for them. And give us boldness and courage to share our faith, to preach the gospel, Lord, and make disciples. Until you return. In Jesus' name, amen.